0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for coming to our pre-performance event. Welcome also to everyone listening at home via the ENO podcast. My name's Alexandra Coglin. I'm a music critic and journalist. I'll be chairing tonight's panel discussion, but before I bring them out, I've been asked to give you a very quick introduction to Philip Glass, Jean Cocteau, and Orfe. Philip Glass's Orfe is not an artistic statement. It's a response to an ongoing conversation, and one that doesn't just begin with Cocteau's Orfe, but it goes back thousands of years to the sixth century BC, when the legend of Orpheus first emerged. Since then, of course, we've had poets, writers, painters, all building on this legend, sort of building up these layers in this palimpsest. Philip Glass's opera stands on the shoulders of all those works. It's always already contingent, it's always incomplete, as tonight's director, Nisha Jones, has expressed so eloquently. She writes about Orphée. The opera is like a hall of mirrors or multiple reflective surfaces. It is based on a film which itself drew inspiration from the whole history of opera. The film reflects on the filmmaker and the opera also draws on aspects of the composer's life. Both the film and the opera refer to other films and other operas and ideas of creativity, death, and immortality are at the center of the work. It is itself and it is also about itself. So I'd like to spend just the next few minutes unpacking a few more of those layers which go into the work. So minimalism, the movement so associated with Philip Glass, despite his great dislike of the term, as I believe Richard's going to go on to talk about later, is a term originally coined in the art world, not the music world. We're in the 1960s in New York, artists like Donald Judd, Frank Stella, Sol LeWitt, who are frustrated by art's increasing complexity, who want to distill it down to its essential elements. They're also frustrated with the notion that art has to represent something outside itself. Why cannot it be complete in and of itself? As Frank Stella famously said, what you see is what you see with minimalism. And of course, musical minimalism is similar in some ways. That idea of distilling things down to their essence, you take the building blocks of music, you take melody, harmony, rhythm, duration, texture, and you reduce the options. So of course, the organic result is repetition because you have far fewer choices. But this is not repetition in the traditional classical sense. If you think about sonata form or a symphony, the return of the theme or the return to the home key, both of those use the ideas of repetition as drama, as narrative, as teleology. We arrive somewhere, we go on a journey but of course with minimalism it's precisely the opposite. This is what we call intentionless music, music that creates a sense of stasis that wants to suspend us in the air to stop time around us. Philip Glass along with Steve Reich part of course of the second wave of musical minimalism following in the footsteps of Terry Riley and Lamonte Young. Now my, I mentioned art at the beginning partly because it's so tied up with the beginning of this musical movement. Because so many of the early concerts of minimalism did not take place in concert halls and opera houses. Those you know, worlds were not commissioning these works. The concerts were taking place informally in art galleries, in studios, in bedsits even across New York. So the result of that were small-scale chamber works because there simply wasn't the space or the resources to create anything bigger. What Philip Glass really added to minimalism was this sense of scope, this sense of grandeur, you know, asking questions about could minimalism work on this far larger canvas? And of course, tackling the biggest question of whether minimalism, this intentionless form, could create opera, opera form based on drama, on narrative, it seems to be a contrast, a conflict between the two. But in his first trilogy of so-called portrait operas, Satyagraha, Akhnaten, and Einstein on the beach, he proves to us that it is possible to write a minimalist opera, to create pieces that are not biographical in the strictly narrative sense, that are collages, that are tableaus, that are sequences of sensations and images and colors rather than conventional pieces of storytelling. But the Cocteau trilogy sort of is, is Glass's attempt to, I suppose, challenge himself further. He's created truly minimalist operas. But now the next question, well, can minimalism do narrative? Can it do tension? Can it do drama? That's what's being addressed here. In 1982, Philip Glass starts writing soundtracks for films of all different kinds. You might know the Katsy trilogy by Reggio, um, sequences of you know, very fast-paced images of the modern world. Interestingly, soundtracks written... Um, very unusually, the, some of the images were cut in order to fit with the soundtrack rather than the reverse. So quite a traditional concert hall style of composition actually. Then there were traditional documentaries where music plays a much gentler, more supportive role. And finally, um, thrillers, even horror films like Candyman, where Philip Glass is experimenting for the first time with musical drama, really manipulating an audience, you know, seeing whether minimalism can you know, turn the screw even further on the drama. And perhaps it's the inevitable next stage that after all of those experiments, the relationships between image and music, that he would want to do that on his own terms. And that's where the Cocteau trilogy really comes into play. Um, three films, all based on works by Jean Cocteau, of which Orfe is the first and in many ways the most traditional. It takes, pretty much verbatim, the original script of the film and sets it as a libretto. La Belle et la Bête is what he called a live dub, so any performance of the opera involves projecting the film and the singers have to lip-sync effectively to their characters on screen. Finally, Les Enfants Terribles, a much more abstract, I suppose, relationship to the original film. Now I've sort of set the scene, but I think at this moment I should bring out our panellists to help delve deeper into both cocktail and Glass. So perhaps you can join me in welcoming Richard Pearson from ENO Music Staff, Glenn Shepard, the Staff Director on Orfe, and James Williams, Professor of French Literature and Film. So welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us. So perhaps again, building up these these layers of reference, can we start by talking about the Cocteau? James, um, can you situate Cocteau for us in terms of film history? What is his sort of signature style? Where does he fit in?
1: Okay. Well, Cocteau in film history, which is just one part of his sort of multi-work uh, over 60 years of work across all artistic and cultural fields. Um, But perhaps uh, he did achieve the most in cinema um, and Orfei being his fifth uh, main film uh, is where he brought everything together. Um, And in a way, this is where he most imposed himself in French film history. He became this key figure for the new wave um, in the 1950s and 1960s. People like Truffaut and Godard saw Cocteau is this kind of supreme auteur figure. Um, They were developing theories of auteurism. uh, The idea that the director can be this visionary in charge of all aspects of film production, conception. And Cocteau represented the kind of the consummate auteur for the new wave. And he was, Cocteau, always opposing himself um, to norms, norms in whether it was literature, um, poetry, novels, theater, but perhaps it's in cinema that he is most oppositional. Um, and I think, actually, to, to call Cocteau oppositional is, for some, problematic, um, because Cocteau represents an establishment. I mean, he was someone who courted fame. He got fame very early, coming out of the Paris Literary Salons. Um, and he was always in the avant garde, but not quite, also in the establishment, but not quite always moving back and forth between different worlds, between um, different um, levels, whether high culture or popular culture. Um, And I think that in cinema, he was able to achieve his dream of becoming a kind of popular uh, artist. Cinema obviously has that because of its reach as an industry. He could do that in the theatre, and he was a very important um, dramatist, certainly in the 1930s, um, and in the 1940s he was at the center stage of um, of French theater. But in cinema, gradually um, he was building himself up into the as I say the supreme um, all complete uh, figure. So what we get in Orfe is someone who, at the very beginning, uh, is presenting his drawings, his line drawings, he is the artist, uh, then we hear constantly his voiceovers in the film, so at every um, moment, Cocteau is imposing himself, and perhaps for reasons which we will get onto uh, shortly, this was a film about survival. He was trying to showcase his talents as well with this film uh, for the particular crisis that he felt himself to be in. Um, so um, there's a sense in which Cocteau is um, projecting Orfe as his um, sort of ultimate film, and it was respected as such by. People at the New Wave, not though by many in the film industry, even though he was working with many of the best technicians, and it wasn't a popular hit that he was hoping for. Um, But I'd also like to say, and perhaps we can get on to this in terms of his style, he was trying to do something um, new in terms of what French quality cinema was trying to do post-war, which was to consolidate itself as an industry and work on literary adaptations um, and, in a sense, become quite formulaic. And Cocteau here had his chance to show how original, how inventive he was as an artist. This was, for him, a way he could sort of come into his own on a big scale. And so where you get sort of formulas and um, clear Storylines, Cocteau um, is going into murky depths in Orfe. He's entering into ambiguities, ambivalences at every level, whether it's to do with characterization, Orfe himself, or whether it's to do with um, how he's. Um, projecting the male body in motion, what he's doing with uh, the notion of this zone that he is creating. Um, And he's introducing, therefore, a whole sense of uncertainty and ambivalence, which goes directly against what French cinema was trying to do, which was to make entertainment. Um, And that reason, I think, is what also drew people like Truffaut and Godard to... Um, to Cocteau as, as I say, this sort of the supreme uh, auteur figure.
0: And the idea of Orphée is a bit of an idée fixe with Cocteau, isn't it? This is not his first encounter with the myth.
1: No, he had um, produced a play in 1926, um, which was called Orphée, and deemed, uh, presented as a tragedy, um, and deemed to be, by Cocteau, a tragedy. He, he clung on to that idea, even though it's very much a farce, a kind of tragedy, uh, farce. Um, and he is playing around already with uh, the myth of Orpheus and uh, Eurydice. But what he's doing there is making a statement, a clear statement, about surrealism and Dada so it's a very particular kind of Cocteau. He's also playing around with his biography as he always was in his work but in particular I think in uh, the, the play Orphe, he is he's giving it, fact, his own address, his Paris address. It's very much in-jokes innuendo. He's playing around with his world, the world that he is uh, moving in in Paris which is a very um, cosmopolitan, gay world. He's playing tricks uh, for his audience. Um, it was a hit and in fact this was the beginning of the return to tragedy in French theatre and Cocteau pursued that line into the 1930s. Um, the sort of the tragic tradition uh, was returned to through Cocteau.
0: And his version of the myth is not necessarily the version that we all know. Can you give us the very broad brushstrokes? Because this, of course, becomes the plot of tonight's opera.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, Cocteau does at the beginning in his first voiceover give us the sort of, uh, the gist of the um, uh, 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 legend, uh, which is that um, Eurydice was... um, taken by death uh, because uh, she was being ignored, essentially, by um, Orpheus. Um, In many of the early um, tellings of the legend, she was simply um, bitten by a snake. Um, But for Cocteau, it's about the fact that she was ignored by um, uh, her partner, uh, Orpheus. And then she's taken into the underworld, and um, uh, what uh, Orpheus does in the uh, tradition um, is to go to Hades, and with the beauty of his lyre, um, bring everyone, seduce everyone, um, into allowing him to take Eurydice back to um, to real life, and he can do that on one condition, which is that he doesn't look back as he's doing it, as he's leading Eurides up the hill. Um, But, of course, he's so keen to hear that Eurydice is behind him and so unsure um, that she is following him, that he does turn back and immediately she is um, lost. He cannot leave now uh, the underworld. Um, and in the original uh, myth, he is eventually um, eaten, um, deca- decapitated, in fact, uh, by the uh, by Um But then in certain tellings of this myth, because uh, there are many, um, he will return uh, to um, the underworld and find uh, Eurydice once he himself has died, and they will live together happily uh, ever after, in love. Um, so Cocteau is uh, interested in this idea of Eurydice being ignored, I think. I think that's the key here. And this is because we have a, an artist, uh, the poet uh, Orpheus, who is unsure about his talent. He's now, in a sense, past his prime, as Cocteau was. So this is why it's a very, very personal film about survival in the art world. Um, And we have this um, figure uh, who is beset by uh, his own um, lack of self-worth. And it's that that we focus on in the film, and Euridice is really not in this film for a good third. She's the wife of Orpheus, uh, but in fact, what happens is that um, Orpheus enters uh, this realm of the zone, this space between life and death, made of the uh, memories of men and the death of their habits, as Cotto calls it, uh, m- way before uh, Eurydice is, is killed um, and herself enters the zone. And this is because of his attraction, uh, fascination uh, for this figure called the princess, who is death, l'amour. And importantly, it's um, personalized, it's his death. She represents his death. And he becomes infatuated with her. And so this is the focus of the film. Euridice is is essentially irrelevant. I mean, she is presented in a very crude way, I think, as a sort of domestic uh, obstruction to his greatness, a greatness that he doesn't have right now, and wants to recapture. And what we're gonna get in this film is is his attempt to capture uh, his literary strength. Um, essentially by becoming a vampire of a poet a younger poet uh, who um, is uh, reading these messages on the radio so it's also therefore about inspiration and what is true inspiration it's certainly not um, something that comes from without, it must come from within. And so Cotto is posing these questions here through the figure of Orfei. Um There is, as in the original um, legend, there is the, the double death of Eurydice, and we're going to see that. I don't want to give the game away if you haven't seen the film or the production. There is a double death of uh, Eurydice. Uh, we get that. But again, a double death, it, it could also be that Eurydice wants to die as well. It's all made very uncertain in this film. Because as I say, the, f- the central figure is um, Orfe, and what he will do with the princess that he is infatuated with. Um, and that's where we're going to in the, um, in, in the zone, this, this strange netherworld.
0: In other versions of the myth we've seen staged this season in Gluck in even Offenbach, the main themes that emerge seem to be both the power of love and the power of music. Mm. But here, is it fair to say that the figure of the artist seems to be at the heart of it, rather than the art itself?
1: Uh, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, love is here, but it's an impossible love, the love between uh, Orfe and the princess. And she has to sacrifice herself, this idea of the sacrifices that are required for the poet to become immortal... Um, and the relationship between Orphe and Eurydice, the love, it's love, but it's a very saccharine type, and it's not a very convincing ending, I'll say that, uh, between the two of them at the end of the film. Um, Beauty, is that what you were also referring to? Um, I mean, the the question of the beauty um, of music here, I mean, I'll just say one thing about um, Gluck, I mean... The uh, composer of the school, Georges Duric, who was one of Les Six, which is um, a group that Cocteau promoted in the 1920s, um, he uh, took certain parts of the um, uh, opera by Gluck, uh, Orfeo e Eridice, and, um, and he's using them in certain ways, sometimes in counterpoint with how they were intended, so a tragic moment, the lament of um, Orpheus, for Euridice uh, becomes a very strange moment of kind of introduction to Euridice. There's nothing tragic about it, but Cocteau is playing with the notion of the beauty of Gluck. Um, this is something that wasn't intended by Durique. It's Cocteau trying to, what he calls, enter into accidental synchronism once he gets to editing sounds and images together. So he's playing with sort of a musical beauty, I think. Um, perhaps we can discuss this um, with with Glenn uh, and Richard, but I think that um, he's trying to um, position himself uh, as someone who was very important to the musical world in uh, the 1920s in particular. And I'll just say one thing, perhaps, um, that Cocteau was here almost... Um, uh, well, almost 100 years ago, uh, with um, a production called The Nothing Doing Bar, where he brought a production from Paris, which was uh, consisting of music, of farce, a pantomime, ballet, um, and presenting it as the latest production of Cocteau the Parisian. He was very much seen as sort of the key figure uh on the um on the paris scene so he really has a history here at the Colosseum. i wanted to say that because you know it's often forgotten that cocteau traveled with his work he wanted to be um, an international figure but in this um film i think that uh he is um trying to play with um beauty of the past the notion of beauty in order to discover what he would call i suppose cinematic beauty And each work that he did, whether it was, in fact, on the stage, or um, for drawing, or uh, whether it was uh, as a muralist, um, or here, as in film, is about trying to find a new type of beauty, this beauty of cinema, or the poetry of cinema, as he called it. And that meant playing around with previous ideas um, of beauty, in this case, the 18th century Gluck Opera. Um, but again, maybe that's something we can, we can talk about.
0: Yeah, I think we, having heard quite a lot about the soundtrack of the original film, we should move on to the score we're going to hear tonight. Richard, I think, is going to, to take us on a, a magical mystery tour through the Philip Glass. So I'm going to hand over to you.
2: Thank you. Um, well, I think the type of Philip Glass's music that many people think of as his classic style can be heard, for example, in the first scene of Akhenaten. <laughs> And it carries on like that with just slight variations for about 20 minutes. That's all there is in the first scene. By contrast, Orfe opens like this. (laughs) It couldn't be more different, could it? We're plunged straight into um, pastiche ragtime, if you like. Um, Now, the music of Eknartem, to return to that for a moment, this kind of material, is perfectly suited to the type of drama that glass is setting there. There's no plot to speak of, no linear narrative. The audience is simply encouraged to immerse themselves in these gradually shifting kaleidoscopic musical patterns while contemplating just one thing or meditating on one idea like the death of Akhenaten or um, in Satyagraha, Gandhi's non-violent form of protest. Um, And audience members who Accept this form of music theatre and embrace it. Um, often find themselves having an almost transcendental experience and come out sort of floating on air and having a most amazing experience. Those who don't quite manage to accept it want to run out screaming. Often, <laughs> and there of course there are those curious few who fall halfway between. And I've heard people come out of Act and saying, well, I quite liked it, but it was rather repetitive." <laughs> and it's that's like saying, "Well, I quite like carrots, but they're a bit carroty, aren't they?" Um, repetition is what this music is made of, um, and in fact, as, as Alexandra said, Glass doesn't like the time, term minimalist, he simply says he composes music with repetitive structures. That is what the music is. Now, orpheus is a completely sort of, different sort of drama to Acknoughton and Satyagraha. It is a detailed linear narrative and the text is conversational in tone throughout. And I find it fascinating how Glass adapts his techniques, the same techniques in those op- other operas, and uses them in Orfait. Um Here are a couple of examples. One of the classic building blocks of Philip Glass's music is a repetitive two-note figure, something like that, often given a harmonic context like this. Now he uses these notes at the beginning of Orfe. He gives them a slightly jaunty rhythm, changes one note but it's still recognisably the same sort of bit of Philip Glass. However the accompaniment that he gives that totally changes the character. So he's already adapted his own classic two-note figure to suit the opening cafe scene Um, and then in each of the succeeding 17 scenes some of them really quite short Glass creates a highly distinctive mood, immediately taking us into the atmosphere of that scene. For example, in scene two, immediately after the young poet Segeste has been run over by two motorbikes, Orfe finds himself having witnessed this incident in a very strange situation. He's in a car with the mysterious elegant princess, apparently, who seems somehow to be in charge of things. There's the corpse of Segeste and the two men who were riding their motorbikes, all there. It's a very weird world. Um, And the music Glass creates for this scene starts, well, is combined of various elements. There's the classic two-note figure. An arpeggio figure. And combined, they give us a very mysterious atmosphere. But then crucially, glass adds a gratingly dissonant note in the bass. We're in C minor here, and there's a a B natural in the bass. Um, And the combination of all these elements creates music which has a profoundly unsettling effect, just as Orfe is profoundly unsettled, finding himself in this situation. So using the same compositional building blocks as Act and so on, he creates atmospheres for um, each situation in Orfe. Maybe just two more examples. Um, Act one, scene seven, takes place in the commissioner's office and is a bustling conversation between three people. Um, and m- the music of most of this scene is a very simple but highly effective combination of three rhythmically contrasted two note figures. There's this. The classic two-note thing outlining a third. And a bass line. Very simple elements. But combined, and then slightly modified, they give us the atmosphere of the scene. And it's got quite a nice funky feel to it. I've always enjoyed playing that one in rehearsals. Um, But that music bustles along with that same character throughout the scene, pretty well unchanged. And here we come to a crucial point. On the whole, once the mood of a repeating pattern has been set up, he doesn't change it much. So the spotlight goes firmly onto the singers, onto the vocal lines, and onto the text. The atmosphere bubbles along underneath, and we're absolutely drawn to the conversation on top. Uh, just a quick comparison with more harmonically-led music, for example. To take a rather cheesy example, Nessun Dorma from Turandot. Um, the main theme starts in the home key of D major. You all know that, and at the end, at this cadence, Puccini doesn't go back to the home key of D, he goes to G, and we know it's got to go back to D at some point, at some point, which is what makes that Vincero, I will win, the climax. it arrives there. And the sort of magnetic pull of the harmony driving us to that point is how Puccini and many composers articulate drama and text. Glass's music doesn't qu- quite work like that. Um, he sets a mood and then the focus is on the text. Um, however, the music, the way his music can enhance drama, can actually be very powerful and works by a cumulative effect with slight variations of repeating patterns. Uh, one last example uh, it's a scene from Act Two, a very romantic scene. Um, It's built up of just the usual simple elements. That old repeating pattern, which changes slightly. Um, Very simple bass line of four notes. And a tune. A tune in Philip Glass. It goes like this. Now, that's not going to win the Schubert Prize for melody. However... These elements combined produces very touching music and then he gradually shifts them. He then introduces lush string chords with beautifully clashing harmony. she develops with a sensuous rocking rhythm and then he reintroduces the tune not a million miles from Rachmaninoff is it uh, but it's built out of the familiar building block blocks that he usually uses so there's just a few examples of um, Thank
0: music. you so much Richard for giving us such a vivid sense of what we're about to hear Glenn, now to you. Can you give us a sense of what we're going to see tonight? Um, you've been with Nisha Jones throughout the process. What Can you tell us a bit more about her concept for tonight's sure. production?
3: Sure. Um, so, yeah, I, the, the I mean, the first thing you'll see when you come in, there's a pre-show sort of environment set up in the space. It's not a typical... Colosseum show where you take your you take your plastic glass of Pinot Grigio and um, wait for the show to start. The room is staged in a sense, so the the house is only open at a specific point, and the room there's there's a there's a hum in the room, and there's an audio track of Jean Cocteau addressing the year 2000, a seven-minute fragment of an interview where Jean Cocteau is talking about the year 2000. And in this piece of text, he says, La mathématique est une sorte uh, de poésie supérieure, um, which is um, mathematics as a kind of superior poetry. And that's kind of the the main launching-off point of Nietzsche's production of this Orphe. It's a sound stage, the set. So you'll see very clearly this is a technical environment. There are grid lines with numbers. There are dock doors with numbers. Everything is measured. Everything is about measurement and about technique and precision. Um, if you pay attention, you might notice on the your left-hand side of the stage, uh, you might see some furniture very, very slowly, some café tables very slowly creeping in, if you pay attention. It's not lit, but it's there. Uh, you'll see this: the video of Jean Cocteau on a TV that's sort of floating um, downstage left, this side, um, in front of you uh, with the head of Jean Cocteau and a man standing behind it gesticulating. So it's very much... It's very much proposed that we're in a place where something's gonna be made, where something's gonna happen. Um, and that is launching off, of course, from this quote about mathematics being a kind of superior poetry, but also the film Testament d'Orphée, which is the third of the trilogy of Orphic films that Cocteau made. And Le Testament d'Orphée, um, he made, I think it was 1960, I think right before he died, wasn't it? So Orphée 1950, Blood of a Poet was 30, what was Song de Poets? It was
1: 1932, again. Okay. It was made in
3: 1930. Ah, okay. A bit of a hang time. Uh, so yeah. So uh, basically, at the end of his life, this the, the Orpheus story had a major had a major resonance for Jean Cocteau. Um, in terms of um, Orpheus, Jean Marais was his lover. He basically did a bit of a Benjamin Britten Peter Pears with uh, Jean Marais to make him play himself and a very unattractive version of himself um, in the film. Uh, so and he returned at the very end of his life to this whole Orphic ferment that he had um, in Le Testament d'Orphée, which is basically an autoparotic kind of poetic exercise about the making of film and about the impact that the Orpheus story has had on his life. Um, it's sort of a haunting, in a sense, he haunts himself. And so Nisha has, has launched off from that haunting and, and dug into that... Idea with Philip Glass in mind as well. So, there are basically three access points for Nietzsche in the production. One is Cocteau and Le Testament, one is Philip Glass and his Francophilia and his, um, his obsession with Jean Cocteau, and this thing that people who aren't from my side of the pond can't entirely understand about Europe until you get there is that it's really crazy and really special. Um, so, that you, especially for him at the time, you just he could only access it through film. So the idea of of young Philip Glass in Baltimore watching uh, Orphe by Jean Cocteau in four to three, you know, just the, the magic that that has of the world that it presents. Um, and also I think the third access point is the myth of male genius. And I think that that's ultimately the heart of what Nisha's, what Nisha's doing in this production. And that's where Nisha really it brings herself into it. Um, The idea from Ovid forward that in Western culture from the Greeks that we have this idea that woman is not to be trusted. Um, That Orpheus has to look back to make sure that his wife is following him. And that sort of kernel that gives us the misogyny that bleeds throughout Western culture, and potentially can never be corrected. Um, And so for my money, that's Nisha putting herself on stage. And that's Nisha responding, in a sense, to the way that she works with video and film and most of her directing work as well. So her sort of, her sort of saying, OK, I'm going to come into the sound stage with Cocteau and Philip Glass, and I'm going to start playing with these toys as well. But Nisha's trick, I think, in the end, is to be brave enough to give us romance.
0: It's interesting. You're talking about the myth of male genius, and we've got Lizzie Clark the designer, and Nisha, two female creators. And Lucy
3: Carter, the lighting designer as well.
0: And I wonder how visually, particularly in the interaction between the filmed elements and the live, um, Lizzie and Nisha have, have sort of created the world here. Can you draw our eye perhaps to one or two details that they use as kind of um, points of reference, I suppose?
3: Sure. I mean, the, the yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's difficult with the film because we basically, in this world, we've got rear projection, frontal projection, some screens that come in, Um, with matte projection. We have the mirror effects. Obviously mirrors are a big thing. We haven't talked too much about mirrors yet, but the line from from Cocteau is that the mirror is the thing that shows you that you're you're dying because you see yourself aging. Um, So there are some live camera mirror effects. But in terms of the, the visual environment, how it's informed by video, for me, Sometimes it provides set structure, because we are in a very, a very flattened out technical environment. So sometimes it gives sort of depth. But it, oftentimes, it is, it is something that we're not meant to watch. It's, it's color, it's, it's part of this ferment. It's not, it's not content in that sense, it's an echo, or it's, a, it's an emanation, or it's, a, or it's a hint. But it's not, Nisha's never sang, or Lizzie's never sang like, look, it's the movie. Even if it's stuff that we painstakingly recreated in the studio beforehand to, to measure to the movie. It's not, it's not that kind of filmic production in a sense. It really trusts performance.
0: Is it fair to say it's used thematically as well, that this is a piece so much about the difference between illusion and reality, sort of inspiration and the banal everyday, to have these two planes seems quite relevant.
3: Yeah, absolutely, I think so, and I think that's the the promise of the premise of having um, the soundstage environment, because if you've not been on a soundstage, it's a cold room, because they can't turn any air conditioning on, so everyone's really cold or everyone's really hot, Um, and it's suddenly really super quiet, and there's a light on in a corner, and there are a bunch of people being very furtive with cables and lights and such but the thing that they're making in that corner is this magic that that magnifies and it's it's the promise of that of that space that the set of this production is meant to be proposing as well interesting interesting thought that in this we we did a week of filming uh, with the singers before we did any rehearsal which was the first time that I've done that in a process. And it was actually super fascinating because it really fast tracked these singers who are used to doing this ephemeral thing that disappears. Um, but fast tracking them into their costumes before they've even rehearsed, before they've had any conversations with the director, before we've done any scene work. And it had this amazing impact on them in that they just jumped to it. There's this idea in film of the hit that like a casting director sees somebody and says, like, you, you're the boy next door, or you, you're the, the naughty girl who, I don't know, um, and it was very interesting to see how these singers sort of inhabited these costumes and really just plugged in immediately and how that really gave us so much to work with when we began, we just got to we just got to take the ground running.
0: In mean, this production, something that's slightly different to other stagings of Orphée is the libretto, which of course he last took from the original French uh, text of the film, INO, of course, does opera in English, it's translated. I wonder for both you, in terms of drama and Richard, in terms of the music, perhaps more importantly, has that had any effect on the piece? <laughs>
2: um, well, one of the challenges, of course, is the, um, uh, when translating any opera, uh, but particularly a very conversational one like this, is that a lot of rhythms are there for the original French rhythm, articulation, and finding where the stress falls in the sentence um, it can be very tricky business, translating it. Um, there's a great translation, but we've modified some of the rhythms, both Nisha and Geoffrey, the conductor, um, and we all sort of made suggestions. Just to give you one example, there's a line for the poet in the first scene, the old unnamed poet, um, which in the this English translation, but with the original French rhythms, goes like this. She is often seen with the princess, she finances the review, which, has just agreed to print the first works he's done. A very stilted sort of in terms of how the sentence goes. So we modified it to make it, we hope, a bit more natural like this. She is often seen, sorry. He is often seen with the princess. She finances the review which has agreed to print the first works he's done. So it kind of keeps the same melodic contour but shifts some of the stress around just to make it a bit more natural for the English. It's not been possible to do that throughout. And when it hasn't, that, of course, actually adds to the slightly strange air which so much of this piece has. Um, but the vocal lines, particularly for the sopranos, are a big challenge in this piece, um, and particularly for the princess. Um, Jenny does an amazing job. A lot of the text lies very high in the voice, and that applies to both the French and the English. But um, that's one you, of the big challenges.
0: It's a challenge. Do you think um, dramatically it has a, an effect, or you know, is this intended to sound strained in some way or, or otherworldly?
2: Um, I wouldn't say strained, but uh, <laughs> strange, perhaps. Is there agent uh, here? Um, certainly otherworldly, yes, with the princess, who is this extraordinary figure, and you, we gradually get to know who and what she is, but she remains very strange and otherworldly, and in particular... her her last scene when she has lots of text high up in the voice. So she retains this very strange character. And that's, that's one thing that spoken film doesn't do that opera can, I suppose, when we have these sung vocal lines.
0: One element of the opera, Glenn, I wasn't expecting, and it obviously emerges directly from the film, um, is comedy. I don't really associate Orpheus as a myth with, with ideas of laughter, but th- there is this extraordinary scene after Orpheus and Eurydice returns when they can't look at each other, but they're trying to make you know breakfast there at home very domestically. Um, is Nisha sort of trying to preserve that comedy, and if so, how here?
3: Yeah, absolutely. We call it the Fado scene. And the morning that we, that we arrived to work on it, all of us were like, do we have to do this? <laughs> is this going to happen? Um, because the rest of it is so naturalistic and so small and so honed in that coming to that scene was really like, all right, we're going to climb the, the forest mountain. Um, so yes, absolutely. That was, um, uh, and it's also, I mean, to be honest, in the film, it's also a weird... It's a weird, it's a weird event. It's suddenly, suddenly a style exercise plopped into the center of something that's quite a different style exercise. Um, so yeah, so it was definitely, it was definitely one of the challenges of, of, and if, of having a tonal difference. We sort of talked about like finding, finding, are, is it the same, are they using, are they performing the same style, but doing physical comedy? Or are we actually, are we putting rabbit ears around the style itself? And eventually we put the rabbit ears on it and then sort of sanded them down.
0: James, in the original film, what do you think the function of that comic episode is?
1: Um, to pass the time? I mean, <laughs> no, but, but, seriously, but seriously, because it was all about, as, as, as you were saying, Glenn, I mean, this idea of the mirrors, you see death at work, it's all the time counting, counting out time. And where are we? I mean, we're in different sorts of reality. The zone seems to be actually multi-screened and full of different realities. And, and you come never... back to the same time as well, don't they? That's just right. The and, 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 and so this idea of counting time is very important, I think. I mean, we are looking at our watches and we're thinking time is passing. Um, can I just come back to the question, though, of, of the comedy because the uh, in the film it starts with a comment by uh, Orfe that he's just drunk uh, had a drink at the Café des Poets and it was very bitter and there is a comedy throughout um, the whole film but it's a very bitter ironic dark comedy I mean there are Many, one might call them sort of dark, humorous uh, comments by Ertebys, um, who has this idea that humans are squirming in their, in their mess the whole time. And that's the spirit of this film. It's very dark from the off. And so when you get this kind of blatant, sort of domestic, Phaedo-type farce, um, actually you had to take it seriously as well, because, as I say, this is, this is time passing and it's death. There's nothing light in this film at all. And I would say that as a general comment about Cocteau, I mean, who's dismissed so often as this light, you know, ultra versatile, uh, multi-artist who couldn't sort of concentrate on one field. He did everything, whatever field he was working in, with absolute mathematical precision and rigor. I mean, he was not a light artist. Everything was ultra serious because his art is about trying to construct some new artistic being for himself. I mean, and this uh, film um, is when he is essentially being uh, ignored by the people that he would most want to be recognized by, his fellow artists, uh, uh, someone from the avant-garde who is now dismissed as the establishment. And so this is ultra-serious for Cocteau. And comedy um, and different sorts of it, different kinds, is part of that story. It has to be
0: wonderfully dark exchange at the beginning when Och says well the public loves me and uh, is it the critic who says well they're alone they're but, alone yeah.
1: and the very last moment uh, in the film he still says once he's achieved you know the return back from the zone and he's now got Eurydice and they're going to have the child that um, she is expecting he still says I'm detested I mean there's nothing triumphant about that um, it's, it's very dark
0: on which note, I think we I feel like we're just starting the yeah. discussion, but um, I feel like we should open it up. We've got time for maybe two questions. I'm going to pass over the microphone. Could you wait to ask your question until you've actually you've got the mic?
1: I've always been wondering, what is the uh, metaphor of being forbidden to look back? Um, good question. Um, it's a very good question. Can I think about that? <laughs> because it's so loaded. I mean, and I think um, you know, in Cocteau, has a very erotic um, twist to it that he shouldn't look back, and yet he can't help looking back. Um, the play with the backs of the male bodies in this film is 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 very important, and we could talk a lot about how Cocteau films male bodies in motion with reverse motion or slow motion. So, so that question actually informs the way Cocteau is filming um, the male bodies in motion in this film. Um, I mean, it is about trusting, uh, trusting that uh, his wife will follow him. Um, that's, that, that's that's the the legend, but I think Cocteau uses that as a as a sort of stepping stone for talking about um, uh, the backs of things, if you like, the backs of the invisible sides of um, the everyday and visibility. I think sort of um, uh, the front and the back, and you could let, perhaps connect that to shot-counter-shot. There's a lot of shot-counter-shot in this film. Um, it becomes a, quite a formal question in this um, particular film by Orfei. Um So, I, as it always does with Cocteau, I mean, you talk about themes, but they always come down in the end to the rules of the medium that he's working in, in this case cinema, in this case shot-counter-shot. He is uh, an artist of montage that defines Cotto, I think, from the very beginning of his work um, as, a, um, as a poet and novelist. It's montage. It's how things work together, connect together. Um, so you have the, um, the foreground, you have the background, they're always in a certain tension. So that myth of looking forward and not looking back, but <laughs> the temptation always to look back, um, is, becomes a formal question, I would say. Talking about looking at, uh, at the backs, I actually saw the Gluck last night, um, which is totally different from any other production of the Gluck that I've seen before, and not least because of the use of the dancers, which was quite remarkable in many ways. And your talking about looking at the backs actually sort of sparked off thoughts from, from last night's mm-hmm, production. So I'm just wondering if, if with these four, four productions, only what the, the was light don't have a chance to see, but the others, is there, is there some interaction between the productions as well as looking at four different versions anyway? Uh,
3: dramaturgically or physically? Either. I think, uh, dramatur- no. I'd say the simple answer is no, dramaturgically, I think not. Uh, physically, they were theoretically meant to share the same set. Uh, and insiders, people like me, or who like know what a, what a set is, in terms of like what structures are, you'd recognize that these four trucks are shared amongst all, all productions, and the floor was meant to be shared as well. Um, in the end, we have our own floor, um, but we do share the trucks, so in the end, it, that's the, the main interaction is that.:
2: can we, can we expect any more Orpheus? Operas, like Monteverdi, for example? I think none of us can speak to that.
3: I can't can't speak to that. No, I don't know. I don't know. I think it might be a little bit Orpheus down for the moment. I think that's (laughs) one season was was enough. Next season. Yeah, exactly. (laughs)